0: Hey, Melanie, how's it going?
1: Derek, so good. good (laughs) Are you you. sure? (laughs) Do I seem unsure?
0: I mean, you had that little bit of a pause there, so I was like, "Mm I don't know. know What's going on over there?
1: Derek, listen, it is always a privilege and a pleasure to spend time with you.
0: Likewise, (laughs) likewise, I see we're, we're not quite twinning, but we're kind (laughs) of close is the season, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's been great going on this journey with you having these conversations. I've, I've I've really, really, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And I went back to our first episode around laying the groundwork because I really want to get a sense of like, have we been answering the questions that we said we're going to answer? Yes. Or have we addressed the topics that we said we're going to address? And it was kind of fun looking back at young Melanie and Derek and, (laughs) you know, just us and our little naivete saying, yeah, you know, let's going to talk about this and we're going to solve, you know, black America's problems. Maybe, Maybe that's a little strong, but you know, just how, how um, joyous we were to enter the conversation. And I'm still joyous now, but in a different way. Mm. And one of the things that stood out to me, there were many things that stood out to me looking back at that first episode and then thinking about all the ones that followed. But I took notes because I was sort of like, okay, there's, there's a lot that we're addressing here. And the word that came up for me the most in looking back on that first episode is the word power. Because we say it a lot, we state it a lot, power, power, power. And when I started thinking about the episodes that followed, I, I kind of came up with four ways in which we discuss or describe power. So three in particular, we were very, very concrete. So one is the power to acquire an asset or to acquire resources or to access land. So one is that just sort of general sense of a power to accumulate something. Yeah. The second one that I thought about was the power for an individual to exercise his or her autonomy or agency in order to achieve some level of greater freedom. The third one was the power for a community to project itself, to have that cultural autonomy that Chris mentioned during the reparations episode. But then there was a fourth one that we touched upon, both in that first episode and then in successive ones we touched upon it. But it's a type of power that that I don't know if there's a way to really to name it and claim it. And that's that's the power that contains and that constrains. You know, a power that contains or constrains someone from being able to to exercise their agency or that contains or constrains a community from being able to project itself and to develop itself in the ways that it wants. And it's a power of such a large scope and such a large type That I don't know that there ever is or will be a way to say this is the source of this power because it's the system. It's the systemic ways in which power manifests itself through gerrymandering, through redlining, through blockbusting, through predatory loans, through whatever it is, that there's no one identifiable source. It manifests itself in different ways. There's no one identifiable source. And so that to me was something that we touched upon, but I don't know that we can ever really really name it and say, this is what it is and this is where it comes from.
1: Yeah, but we can add signifiers to it. So we can say, all right, here are the powers of exclusion or the powers of oppression. I think it's important to be able to do that so that we don't feel powerless in addressing them. Like that we can Mm -hmm. start to name and identify, oh, that right there that is, you know, I tend to think about this every day in terms of my own relationships. You know, I'm married to somebody who is from outside the United States. And it, it in that marriage, in building that closeness, I can see more and more how much I'm conditioned in a mindset of US capitalism, right? I have mm-hmm. certain entitlements. I have certain ways that I uh, look to exert my own influence or have my terms satisfied. Like things need to be on my terms. That is that is an oppressive power. And so I think for us to be able to start to identify it and name it is it in itself a reclaiming um, from disempowerment ourselves. So like you're saying, to name uh, redlining, gerrymandering, and all the rest, but also in uh, predatory lending. But what does it mean to even name the thing where people feel like, well, I just don't understand why, da, 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 da. If there's a feeling like, I just don't understand why, there's a power element there, and let's let's identify it and put a name to it, put a signifier to it.
0: Right, right. And I think the
1: other so I, I totally agree with everything. I think the other
0: piece of this is you know the opposite of power. So the opposite of power, you know, I don't know what folks will think of when they hear me say this, but the opposite of power is permission. Yeah, and the need to ask for permission and to ask for the right to do something that is naturally your right anyway. Oh, approval and yeah. Approval. yes to, to seek approval to yeah. seek approval to ask permission and um That's just exciting. to you know just to live because i'm you know again going back to the whole conversation around moving to the south and i kept asking that question like are we going to continue to let ourselves be at the whims of corporate america are we going to continue to be at the whims of economic factor X, like that move people to the North, that move, that's asking people to move to the South. At what point do we just get to rest? That's yes. the question that I kept asking myself. When do we get to rest and just enjoy and just be in a place and say, yes, this is where where we're going to be.
1: Oh, that's powerful. It it resonates even in Boston, the conversation that we had with Sheena Collier about having agency, such that um, individuals, generations of Black professionals and whole communities aren't now expected to pick up from the neighborhoods that they were redlined into in the city and now move to suburbs well beyond the city because that's the most affordable scenario at this time. So to say that at Mm -hmm. any point you need to be expected to pick up and shift your life, shift your cultural point of reference and move just so you have permission to be somewhere or even just in the city itself to say, well, how do we have spaces that we can convene to gather? You have to sort of ask for concessions from corporations, from the city, like that's bananas. When you start to really name it, like you say, it feels like, whoa. you can actually see how much our lives are interlaced with, like you say, needing to ask for permission or approval. And there's just something deeply unsettling and off about
0: that. Absolutely, absolutely. and. Now that you're mentioning moving to the suburbs, you know, it's not like folks are just moving to one suburb, they're moving no. to yeah. a variety of suburbs, they're moving to the whole arc of suburbs around the city. And I'm like, well, yeah. will that mean a dilution of power? Because now and it's, it's like, like the, we're not
1: yeah, I mean it, it for it to be affordable in a lot of cases, people are moving far, they're moving 45 minutes an hour from the city. Um, and spread out. That's right. They're not, they don't just have their pick of the verbs, <laughs> And so, and they might not be on the prime commuter train in the community that they're able to move to. I was talking about Black folks. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's diluting our sense of presence. I mean, Sheena was actually arguing that in some communities, there's more and more of a presence of Black folks, such that there is kind of, there probably is going to be more civic engagement built in those nodes outside the city. They still all will reference back to Boston's political power, for example, but that there are these kind of almost like syndicates of um, communities outside the city that are going to be building their own civic and cultural and economic bases, And that's good, too. I like that what we're doing is trying to think on a generational scale, big picture, longer term. One of the questions you've been asking is, in this whole requirement to move, this economic requirement to move, um, are we creating a generation of nomads, you know, in the way that the Great Migration formed whole cities and regions? Black folks who escaped for physical safety to everywhere from, you know, Philadelphia, Chicago, to New York City, is this now another kind of generational shift where people are just economically required to vacate um, and to spread out? And what does that do? What does that do uh, to our consciousness? So I appreciate that you're raising these questions. I mean, it's hard not to, right? I mean, I find it hard not to be, as you know, as
0: you pointed out in that that episode around um, moving to the south or around what do we call it, rebuilding from the ground up. I mm-hmm. tend to think that way. I tend to think as someone who's like, yeah, you know, like I want to have the freedom to make the choice to move. But yes, if, when I do that, I, I, have the, I have the agency, the ability to think ahead and say, okay, these are the moves I'm gonna make. This is the strategy I'm gonna take and just do that. But every so often I do come across people who do not have that, who did not have that. And who may not ever have that. And so it's like, wow, like how plan for how do you have a life? How do you build a life when you don't have you don't have the ability to control what you're going to do and how you want to do it and when you're going to do it. And again, if it's tied to so much of American life, when I think it was thinking about it, so much of American life is tied to the corporate America. So your healthcare, your, of course, your paycheck, of course, any type of stability. So if your company, or if your factory um, yeah. has layoffs or, you know, if it declines or if, you know, if it's bought out, like you don't know where you're going to go. So much of American life is tied to the corporate world that if you don't have some type of alternate or alternative, then you're kind of stuck at, You're you're being blown out of the whims of the corporate world. And that to me, it's a little scary. So yeah, you know, these things leave me just a little bit unsettled. But, you know, I think that we did begin uncovering some ways in which to consider new ways to look forward. I mean this episode is called A New Narrators. I think we have the the we're at a point where new narratives are being written or they're being rewritten in a way that can benefit people in new ways.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that we were left with in our conversation with Chris Manjapra about reparations and recovery, um, and really the notion of repair and community repair is a change in consciousness. You know, And I love that one of the things Chris said is that even this podcast exists as a mode. It's part of this intellectual tradition that reparations is. It's actually, it's not just a mode of providing people money back or giving people access to this or that kind of economic tool, it is actually a, a change in way of thinking. And what we're doing here on this podcast is looking to evolve the way we think about what's possible um, as it relates to land, wealth, power. And um, so we're part of this intellectual tradition. Let's hold that. If we're doing that and we're about changing consciousness and shifting consciousness by learning from each other, learning from our friends, what are the things that we get to explore? you know? Um, And there were um, like highlights and guideposts from various conversations with our guests up until now that lit up for me. Oh, of course we need to be having a conversation about something as simple but really important and effective as estate planning, for example, on the individual level. But on the more community level, um, what does it mean to think about our relationship to land? Like, what are communities that are thinking about reparations on a communal level, how do they even go about that? Not just about like changing who owns title of property, but what does it mean once you do that? Like, and one of the Mm -hmm. things that Chris left with is, does the land actually own us? Are we acting, can we get to our minds to a place where we're actually in response to acting in response to our relationship to land. And if that's true, then we're also thinking about not just the land for our own personal acquisition and enjoyment, and even our ability to hand down something to the next generations. But We're also thinking about care and protection of the land itself, the environment. And to me, that's so important. So all along, like the thing that's most sanguine to me in all of these conversations is this notion of protection. That that's the thing we've been most robbed of. if you If you identify, for example, we talked earlier in this conversation about naming the seemingly unnamed or the thing that you can't p- pinpoint, which is really its own way, a power to be, a power to be elusive and hidden, which is what economic and racist systems are. It's like you can't quite pinpoint the thing that's happening until after the fact, that's its own in its own way of power. Well, the sort of antidote to that, the remedy to that for us, is a power of protection of building in ways that we protect our access to resource, our access to the ability to transfer those assets to further generations, our ability to move through spaces with a sense of protection. And that wealth is a way to build in that protection. But how do we build it in a way that doesn't just basically exacerbate the, the yawning gap in wealth that exists now? Like the yawning mm-hmm. gap how right. do how do we that by building a sense of repair and protection for ourselves and for communities. That's what I'm excited about exploring in our coming conversations with guests.
0: Right, and I think that it's the additional piece of that is around changing the system. So not just changing the consciousness, but changing the system because we can, we're we're at a, we've just passed a 100 year cycle since the Tulsa, Race riots, the Tulsa massacre, <clears throat> where people did build wealth, they had communities, they were, they had agency, they were projecting um, a sense of what the community wanted. They didn't have that protection because that at the time, right, right at that at the right. time did not exist in the system. And I think there's, that question still exists. Is the protection still in the system? Legally it is, it's on the books. It's on the books. But when you can still have communities of people saying, you know, we're being pushed out, we're being displaced, we're being gentrified. Or, you know, just other all the other ways in which people in on paper have protections, but don't necessarily have them. People are having their, their titles, their, their land titles stolen, or I don't even remember how it works, but like somehow somebody gets in your title and they can take your house as you're in it. So, I mean, there's, there's still facets and features about the system that are not protecting and that are lacking that sense of protection that support ownership and that support sovereignty and that support agency and that support um, just someone accumulating and obtaining and projecting power in a way that's meaningful and that's long-lasting.
1: That's long-lasting, sustained. Yeah. And I think we have, to, you know, as we do this, then you're talking about shifting the way systems operate is really what we're, mm-hmm. I think, uh, trying to consider. Because even again, where Chris Manjabra, his, that conversation is fresh in my mind right now, um, because there was so much of a learning in it. I mean, I felt like I was in a seminar. We were really rigorously unraveling um, assumptions about our experience, mm-hmm. um, including mm-hmm. our relationship with the land itself. But one of the things he gave as an example is even where we tout emancipation, Emancipation in itself as a movement um, from governments, from colonial governments was really to protect the wealth being absconded from the white plantation classes in Europe. Um, That emancipation itself legally was a structure that was meant to just preserve the stolen wealth of those slaveholding families and entities. It was not about actually giving autonomy, financial security protection to the formerly enslaved Black people. So we need to really understand that systems in themselves uh, can be formed with ill intent. And so it's not for us to be walking around feeling suspicious at every turn, but we have to be rigorous about if we're trying to give people access to systems what are we asking to have access to? And how do we interrogate and restructure systems in a way that actually really is protective for all? And so this, these, are, these feel like big questions because they're big issues. They just are, they just are. Anything that relates to land is big.
0: Sure, they're big questions, they're big issues, but they also have everyday impact. Like, you know, none of us can really walk around and be like, oh, that's just a big issue. I'm not going to worry about it because it has. It will come down and have an everyday impact. When we're talking about the system and who has access and does the system protect and do we change the system, another question that I would have now and also going forward is do we even want this system? I think the conversation with Carleen and talking about moving from the north to the south, but also what she introduced moving from the U.S. abroad do we even want this system at all? When there are other systems that we could access that some, granted not everybody, but some people could access. Because I remember going to a comedy show featuring Dave Chappelle years and years and years ago, pre pandemic. And it was between the 2016 and 2020 elections. He's like, yeah, I don't know about this. You know, black Americans have saved the US from itself. Yes. Yes. Over the centuries, whether it's at war or through the courts or through legislation or whatever as is, we've saved the US from itself for centuries. Do should we do this again? Is this something that we should do again for the ele- he was referring specifically to the election, to the 2020 election? And so when we're having these conversations and we're talking about changing the system, we're talking about investing, about you know, being part of you know the the move certain movements I'm like do we even want this? Is this something that's really going to benefit us when we are now, many people are now at a point where they can have other options. And Carleen was saying that as well. She was saying people are now at a point where they have other options. They have options they didn't have before. And now they're making choices in, in which they can design their lives to be the ways in which they want. And with the rise of the internet over the past 30 years, um, the rise of remote work, the rise of a whole bunch of other things that really support having a more nomadic lifestyle by choice. I want to add that point, by choice, what if why, what if we chose to do something different?
1: That That is one mode. Um, you know, I think part <laughs> of what we're trying to do, is think about futures that seem like we can't envision it right now, but you can't have a future unless you experiment and try things, when you can have a future, but to purposefully have a future, you start to enact things. I mean, that's what, that's what movements have been all along, is bringing something into being by envisioning something that seems currently like it can't be. So I appreciate that. I can argue and interrogate that. I feel that 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 mode of a nomadic, even a chosen nomadic life, has so many issues with it, not the least of which is our own colonial uh, thrust. You know, like for us to go and do something somewhere else, first of all, you can't run. We can't run. These same ish- issues of inequity exist in Britain, just like they exist here, um, even more extreme in what we call the global South. So, you know, so I, I just think we then end up becoming another side of the problem, going somewhere else. So I, I'm very unsettled by that. I don't disagree with the importance of us having autonomy and agency to live out our life in a different way. But if are talking about whole generations or people moving out of the United States to go somewhere else to do what? To be, you know, basically colonizers, you know? So I just, but I think what what are what is interesting for us if we think of ourselves as staying, whether staying put means staying in the United States or staying in our experience of being part of a black diaspora that is recovering its sense of agency and autonomy and security, um, what are the things we can explore? What are the things we can experiment with? Um, what can we what can we learn from? So I think that's some of what I'm interested in. Um, what are the movements afoot that we don't even know about yet around the country for communal land ownership, for example? Uh, even for things like co-housing. Um, I have clients reach out to me fairly regularly saying, what would it take to build a co-housing community um, in the city, hmm. you know? And so I think... There's lots that we get to explore that can be fun and interesting. Um, that doesn't mean leaving.
0: But it does mean yeah. financing because everything we're talking about comes with a dollar sign. As, as Melinda would say, everything about real estate comes with a dollar sign.
1: So, so you
0: know, we've we can't ignore that as much as we want to say, okay, we're going to be anti-capitalist and, you know, we're going to change the system in a way that's more fair and equitable. Somehow we've got to be able to finance this. And that is through some type of communal financing ability or through something else, some other mechanisms. I'm not really versed on that side of things, but,
1: you know, figuring out how to finance it and then. Yeah. What's that? Well, we can talk to people who are, I mean, this might point to some of the guests that we look to have. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: no, I'm just thinking, you know, we have to figure out how to finance that, but then also what do we do in terms of protecting it sort of in that middle term of like when you when you have the ownership or the possession or the stewardship? Because I'm, I'm trying to shift my thinking yes. around not just owning, but yes. stewarding yes. the land, stewarding the asset. But then, you know, we had brief conversations off camera about estate planning. And so, you know, when it's your time, just before it's your time to hand over whatever it is to the next generation or as you're about to depart from this earthly plane, you have to have some type of estate planning which will secure the stewardship for the next generation and for generation after that. Whatever it is that you're that you're hoping to do, hoping to do in the future.
1: Another Lots idea to that around. totally um that floats is floating into my mind from a conversation again, our conversation on reparations, is apparently there is a black land back movement in the United States that I didn't know about. And these are all these mm-hmm. are all ways of learning um, so that you can envision a new f- a future you know um, it's really like sexy and on trend right now to talk about black futures and afrofuturism. Um, but what does it mean to actually envision that in a way that is related, related to the land? There's something exciting
0: and interesting about that. I still don't want to leave being an expat behind because, because there's yeah. there's still that sense of the black diaspora is in it's not in flux, but it's in move, it's in motion. So you yeah. have more people from Africa and the Caribbean coming to North North American Europe, but you also have a lot of North American blacks oh. and European blacks moving to the Caribbean and to Africa and to Latin America. So there's a yeah. sense of Dynamism and movement, somewhat driven by situ- circumstances and somewhat driven by choice, depends on which side of the cycle you're on, that I think is much more engaged and active than I can ever remember seeing in my lifetime, even hearing about in previous lifetimes. You know, okay. prior to the trans trade. grade, you know, there's there's a sense of dynamism here that I think is in play that, you know, I we could easily see... Was happening with Europeans and European descendants, you know, coming to the New World and going back and reinvesting, and a little bit with you know some Asian communities as well. But I really see it happening more with the African diaspora, and I'm curious to see something. like what that kind of look like. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm seeing, maybe I'm thinking about it in a, in a way that it's not happening. But I kind of feel like there is some kind of flux happening, some kind of movement happening that hadn't existed in quite the way I'm seeing it
1: now. Okay. But we'll see. We'll see. You know, we started this podcast assuming notions of individuals being able to access wealth that they can then transfer to others, but that that's individual actors. They can recover something, um, learn how to, and um, have a sense of empowerment about. But also what we're hearing about is You can't change policy without changing consciousness, but you also can't change the way that the systems and policies can work well and be uh, of benefit to large communities without thinking about the common interest, without thinking about public or community ownership of resources like land. And so even though we're very, I mean, I help people, individuals acquire and sell land, property, individual property, um, there's also something powerful about communities having trusts and communities owning and stewarding land as groups. And so I think that's something that we're going to end up um, traveling and learning more about because it feels a little bit scary because it's like, I know individually, I don't want to give up my individual property rights, but I also know there's something powerful about communities having a stake. and. Having something that they know they have guaranteed access to, and so what are ways that that can be explored?
0: I agree with that 100. You know, I, I'm in this. I'm in a very similar boat. Like there's, there are ways in which I'm invested into the system, into the structure, into a system and structure. Of work. and so like how I move toward a more socially just and yes. economically just position in a way that doesn't also take away my agency. And take away my ability to project what I'm looking for, and to build community the way I want to build community too. Yeah. So we got a lot more to cover, Melanie. A lot more. I feel like the powers that be, the unnamed powers that be, are not liking the fact that we're calling them out, and so they're messing with the Wi-Fi. Um, yeah. So you know, maybe we we that that particular piece of art out, and then you know, come back for the next episode. Great. All right, so I think we should just wrap it up because it's beginning to become worse. But thank you all for sticking with us through this choppy Wi Fi choppy episode. Um, But we look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the Black Lining Forum.
1: Yay, thank you all.